Welcome to We'll Always Have Paris, a podcast that dissects and discusses culture's best and worst love stories set in the city we call home. I'm Rachel Kapelke-Dale, author of several novels, including The Ingenue and The Ballerinas. And I'm Nafkote Tambarat, author of The Parking Lot Attendant. And I'm Chris Newens. I'm a journalist and nonfiction writer. This week on the pod, we start out with the Paris Pages, a new segment that brings you our takes and takeaways about the city we love. Today, we discuss what characterizes a Paris memoir, the observations, the people, and the cliches we love to hate. Then it's time for the love story, the segment where we do a deep dive into a classic Paris-based love story from fact or fiction to figure out whether it works and if we buy it. Today, we kick off our Hemingway month with Ernest Hemingway's memoir of Paris, A Movable Feast. Let's just say some of us are more enchanted with him than others. Finally, we'll round things off with the game of Mary Fuck Kill, the segment in which we apply the classic slumber party game to the characters from our main love story. This podcast contains explicit language and discusses adult themes. Please listen with care. Thanks for joining us. Now, here's this week's episode of We'll Always Have Paris. And now it's time for the Paris Pages, the segment in which we give you our takes and takeaways about the city we love. So we've been reading a lot about Paris. Is that true? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of of stories set in Paris, uh, a number of Paris memoirs as well. And so I was just wondering, like based on this, can you come up with your ideas as to kind of what would make almost the perfect Paris memoir. What kind of, what, sorry, what points does a Paris memoir have to hit? Oh, that's great. Um, okay. It's, there's got to be an awkward language misunderstanding. Right. Okay. And even before, th- before then, I think it it's always good if the person who's telling the story has to escape something or is fleeing towards something. Paris works best when Mm. it's an active choice of some sort or out of desperation, I had to come here. But there's always an urgent reason for them being in Paris in the first place. But that's not actually what Paris memoirs do. That's like the platonic ideal of what Paris memoirs do. But like a movable feast, you know, he's just really poor and like, you know, money will go far. But that could be it. Even the, what's the George Orwell one? Um, Down and Out down in Paris and, out. and London. It, it doesn't have to, I guess, I guess maybe it doesn't have to be so propulsive, but I do think that I was broke and then I landed. I don't know. There, I think Paris has some sort of mystical quality in the ideal memoir. There's got to be a like standard description of just the beauty of the city and often the same things like streetlights and cobblestones and things that you don't really get everywhere, just in certain right. parts. And observations of non-French people, non-Parisians living in Paris, being gauche, being oafish, a few funny lines of dialogue from them. Well, some, something, <laughs> about, something about French women. Yes. Um, and wearing scarves. Yes. As we were out to dinner last night at a restaurant, and I'll tell you, when I walked to the bathroom, I realized that every person wearing a scarf in that restaurant was speaking English. It's <laughs> <laughs> a way to not blend in. Right. There has to be some sort of... The scarf is the new beret. There has to be some sort of all-encompassing statement about the French. 
and about France at large that somehow highlights or puts to shame an element of the memoirist's native country or where they're from. Mm. Definitely. There's a food scene, at least one, usually a market scene. Right. Uh, yeah, for sure. A little bit of French thrown into the dialogue, but not too much, because then it's a French book, and who wants to read that? There has to be the dark night of the soul, where they're like, I hate that the shops are closed on Sundays, and yeah. I need a, a Band-Aid, goddammit. That's the dark night of the soul. For as far as Paris memoirs go, it usually is. <laughs> it, that's, it has, there has to be an observation about the inefficiency of Paris, but then that's juxtaposed to how that actually means that Paris has a soul, as opposed to the mechanical, always up, 24-7 world of wherever the memoirs comes from. Yeah, and they also have to have something about how the French take things easily and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, yeah, you're not in an office. Like, of course they do. Like, of course they do, because you're looking at the people who can be out in cafes at 2 p.m. on a Thursday. There's almost like a quality to the way French people are described in these memoirs that's a little bit like the magical Negro, where they're silly children until they deliver a line of wisdom that only could come from someone stumbling in English. Mm, that's so true. So incisive. now. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> so because I did ask the question, I did kind of come up with my own like list, which is not exhaustive of things. And in no particular order, I thought that a classic Paris memoir consists of there's got to be a lot of drinking in it. Drinking is, is important. Um, a trip outside of Paris, I think, ironically, is one of the things which really characterizes the Paris memoir. We've got to get out of this damn city. Yeah, very true. <laughs> uh, preferably to Spain, but I suppose it could be to anywhere. Or the house, the country home of French people that were, that were met along the way. Uh, yes, of course. Yes. Oh, there are generalizations about France that are based entirely on upper middle class white people. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Like in their 30s and 40s, yeah. Perfect. <laughs> I mean, I think actually that that as a kind of a general genre um, is that it's a very middle class memoir. That's yeah, true. it's just too long to fit on the bookstore shelves, so they know, yeah. they had to shorten it. <laughs> Down and out in Paris, uh, notwithstanding, obviously. Right. Um, it's the exception yeah, that proves the rule. Learning about art uh, is, we, I think we touched on that. A lot of uh, Paris memoirs, I think, have a lot of name dropping in them, particularly if they're written from a certain time. It's always, and then I bumped into Gertrude Stein. Or if it is written by Gertrude Stein, and then... I bumped into myself, the genius. (laughs) (laughs) I looked in the mirror and I said, God, Gertie, (laughs) what a genius we are. Um, a lot of moving around. That's uh, very important. Like, no, nobody ever just has a, a long trip. walk. There's always a long walk. Yeah. And, and lots of descriptions of moving um, yes. and the difficulties therein. Yeah, of moving in what sense? Sorry. Like moving, yeah. a, moving apartments. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course. Or even always, of getting apartments, buying apartments. Exactly. There's always a long passage that's about administration or bureaucracy of some sort. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've also got just a few just to come uh, come across, like some kind of illness. It often does well if somebody gets sick and they've disappeared for a while. Or you go into their small chambre de bon. Um, you saw that with the memoir of Moulin Rouge with, <laughs> with consumption, right? And, oh, man, are you going to tell her? Or am I? <laughs> what's, what's going on, guys? What's no, on? it's good, baby. It's good. Okay. I mean, I know you learned a lot from Yeah, that we all watched the memoir. documentary. Right. 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 Yeah. I've written French people, French people optional. Oh, my God. That could be the, we should have a spin-off podcast called French people optional, where we interview people in Paris. <laughs> and it's just our Anglophone friends. Okay, no one could take that idea. Trademark, TM. <laughs> I've already copyrighted. Patent, yes. All the words. You can't copyright a title. 
and obviously the the characterization of Paris as a like a human being or as a person, like uh, a woman, uh, usually yeah, as a woman. Yeah, Paris nobody's ever like Paris, Paris <laughs> fucked me so good with that big Paris stick, <laughs> with that Eiffel Tower. Oh wait, <laughs> you had to go there, Rachel. I think we were all thinking it, but <laughs> look, I've, I'm brave. <laughs> so anyway, to um, but. And I appreciate you guys' input on this. Like, really, I do. And I appreciate what I've come up with. But you said it in a way where it doesn't feel like you appreciate it. I think he's going to read us his Paris memoir. I knew it! <laughs> the thing is, I thought, who knows? <gasps> ChatGPT! <laughs> <laughs> no, you did it! That's right. It's friend of the pod, <laughs> ChatGPT. <laughs> Look, I know him as Luke, but... <laughs> So I asked uh, ChatGPT to uh, to write me a, a Paris memoir, and we'll see how close this uh, comes to <clears throat> title. From Paris with Love, a memoir. The memoir follows the journey of a young woman named Olivia who moves to Paris in her early twenties to pursue her dream of becoming a writer. Kill me. <laughs> story... <laughs> the story begins with Olivia arriving in Paris and her first impressions of the city of lights. She immediately falls in love with the city's culture, food and people. Olivia finds a small apartment in the heart of Paris where she spends most of her time writing and exploring the city. She meets a group of writers who become her friends and mentors and she starts to attend literary events and readings across the city. Chat GPT is like creeping on my life. <laughs> and I don't, I'm not not interested. <laughs> As Olivia becomes more immersed in the Parisian way of life, she discovers that living in the city isn't always as glamorous as she initially thought. She faces several challenges, including navigating the complex French bureaucracy and dealing with the loneliness that comes with living in a foreign country. Yeah, we didn't cover solitude. <laughs> wow, we always miss that. Yeah, AI beat you there. <laughs> Despite the challenges, Olivia's love for Paris only grows stronger. She explores the city's hidden gems, falls in love with a Frenchman, and learns to speak French fluently. Fluently! <laughs> blah, blah, blah. She reaches um, a C2 level. <laughs> memoir reaches its climax. Olivia has to decide whether she stays or leaves. In the end, she chooses to stay. Oh, does she discover pleasure? Because usually in a memoir, the person is really like uptight, has strange moral values, and then Paris opens them up. I mean, you should uh, write into uh, the singularity because that's not here. Dear singularity, <laughs> it's me, Nav. <laughs> um, the memoir ends with Olivia reflecting on her time in Paris and how it changed her life, blah, blah, blah. Oh, she publishes a book, good for her. Um, <laughs> that you find out is the book that you've just been reading. <laughs> she leaves Paris with a heavy heart, but with the knowledge that she will always carry a piece of the city with her wherever she goes. Ugh. Now... I wasn't entirely satisfied by that. Yeah, that could have really been about any city. I mean, it had a lot of the Paris tropes, but it didn't mention locations or specific mm. food. The Paris tropes were that it kept saying Paris, basically. Mm. Like any abroad memoir would have That's that. It. Yeah, so I was, I, you know, I wasn't totally happy. Um, I thought, how can I, how can I refine this to make this more like the kind of Paris memoir? Are we going to do a Mad Lib where you took out certain words and we're going to fill them in? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So I wrote. Write the plot of a Paris memoir set in the 1920s, which I thought might be more okay. like yeah. more appropriate to the kind of memoirs that at least we've been looking at. So Ernestine comes to Paris. <laughs> <laughs> well, not quite. Chat GPT hasn't been that 
original here. Title, A Movable Feast. (laughs) (laughs) Titles aren't copyrighted, you guys, Uh, which I would like you to know as my upcoming book is uh, titled Harry Potter, Book 13. (laughs) (laughs) And mine's Catcher in the Rye. That's insane. Um, the memoir follows the experiences of a young writer named Ernest Hemingway who moved to Paris in the 1920s to pursue his career as a journalist and writer. The story begins with Hemingway's arrival in Paris and his first impressions of the city. He finds himself immediately enchanted by the city's bohemian culture, art scene and literary circles. He finds a small apartment in the Latin Quarter where he spends most of his time writing and exploring the city. Just like Olivia all those years later. ChatGPT just did its own mad lip. Got it. Okay, great. He might he meets other expatriate writers, including Gertrude Stein, Ezra Pound. It's true it? though. It is true. Um, as Hemingway becomes more entrenched in the Parisian way of life, he discovers the dark, city's darker side. He struggles to make it make ends meet and goes hungry. He becomes involved in a tumultuous love affair with a woman named Hadley, which ultimately leads to the end of his first marriage. I got the names mixed up. Yeah, I got it. Yeah. Wrong. Anyway, um, much like Olivia, he uh, he comes to like Paris. Uh, he publishes a book which uh, becomes a critical success. And then um, he leaves Paris with a sense of nostalgia, but also with the knowledge that the city will always hold a special place in his heart. And notice he did not leave the heavy heart like Olivia did. So Chatty was interesting there. You guys, what are we doing with our lives? <laughs> <laughs> I did then wonder... Um, how do you think things might change in the future? Well, everyone in Paris will be a chat GPT bot. <laughs> so it'll be a lot more. Well, look, so you you end up meeting your future self. And like you, you previously had this adventure where you had to go back in time and like your mom just wanted to fuck you. And you had to like stop the clock tower from being struck by lightning or make it struck by lightning. I don't remember. But then in this version, you're like old and disappointed. And like, that's not the life I want in Paris. <laughs> Rachel, you're like an AI with its wires crossed. And your name is uh, Michel Renard. Um, and you just do what you need to do. AI with your with your wires crossed is probably the most accurate and devastating description you know, anybody's oh ever given. But you know what I realized? The future Paris memoir, everyone is going to be an influencer, a social media expert, like everyone's going to work in digital something, which is why they can move so easily to Paris. And then the bureaucracy will be taken care of by their employers back home. You would think you would think all of this. But the thing is, is that ChatGPT has already got it down for you. It's about a young woman named Ava in her early 20s. It's called Paris Reimagined, a memoir of the future. Obsessed. A memoir of the future is a good title. That's actually yeah. Okay, Chatty. As Ava settles into her new life in Paris, she explores the city's futuristic architecture, transportation, transportation system, and advanced medical facilities. It's <laughs> all the, the spaceships. The you, you know how you do. You know how you do when you arrive in a new in a new place. You explore the advanced medical facilities. Ooh. As the memoir progresses, Ava becomes deeply involved in the city's tech community. She attends conferences, collaborates with other innovators, and starts her own company. She works on projects that range from blah, 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 blah. Well, at least she's not a writer. <laughs> no, she meets a man. There are no more writers in the future. Because ChatGPT is Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's actually predicting our own demise. It's telling us, you are irrelevant. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, ChatGPT says, watch your backs. <laughs> spoiler, Ava also leaves Paris with uh, knowledge that Paris will always be in her heart forever and in the future. And she waves from the UFO. <laughs> <laughs> and Paris goes, boop, 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 and that's the end of the memoir. Wow, you guys. This is, uh, A, we're irrelevant, but also if we were that irrelevant, what would ChatGPT write, write memoirs about? That's true. Good point. <laughs> Good point. We're living it, so ChatGPT we can write obsolete, it. Absolutely, but you're obsessed with us, Chatty. <laughs> Fucking deal with it. <laughs> Stay tuned for the love story. In the meantime, this is your Parisian AI who's just got some wires crossed. <laughs> And now it's time for the love story. Okay, guys, we're here. We're going to talk about a movable feast. And we're really excited, as you can hear my Christmas voice. Welcome to Hemingway Month. Um, Hemingway year. From now on, the podcast will only be exclusively Hemingway. Goodbye to 20% of our listeners. And hello, hello to the inclusion suddenly of all of you who are insufferable. We can't wait. Can't wait to have you join our family. Go ahead. Hello, worst men I've ever dated. (laughs) Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Hello, that creepy professor from university. Fancy seeing you here. (laughs) Stay tuned for anecdotes about you all. (laughs) So, guys, tell me honestly, was a movable feast the reason that you moved to Paris to become writers? It wasn't the reason, but it definitely helped. I definitely, I, I, I just remember reading that book and... First of all, I, I had only read Old Man and the Sea when I read Movable Feast. And I remember I read it in eighth grade for school, was so fucking bored by it. And then I think my dad gave me Movable Feast because um, I I was taking French class and he want, he was to go with Set in Paris. And I think I was just so delighted that first time that it wasn't Old Man and the Sea that I loved it. It was already a knockout. Every page that was not about an old man or the sea. There's also a fish, which is... Uh... No, in, in old man. Yeah, I was, I was like, animal face, get it off me. <laughs> Do you think that that was a like a canny career move that he was like, I'm going to write one horrible book that's so short, <laughs> eighth graders around the country will have it on their syllabus for the next century. And then when they discover other things I've written, it's going to blow them away just by comparison. <laughs> So I I got Movable Feast as part of my like presence for eighth grade graduation. So I also I read it in Paris for the first time. Oh. I read it at the same time I was reading The Sun Also Rises. Oh. I don't remember which one I read first. Um, so it is indelibly linked in my mind with my first experiences of Paris. Mm-hmm. Not <laughs> that anything I experienced when you're like 12 and on a trip with your parents is like a, <laughs> like a movable feast. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, so I think um, for me, I came to a, a movable feast relatively late in the, the my sort of Hemingway reading. Um, and there was a, a part of that was just because it, it you know, just it seemed like almost too delightful. <laughs> like it's a, um, you know, you, yeah, I hate things that are too delightful. <laughs> I read all of the other books, and and you know, and then you get to this one, which is is purely just this memoir of like him living in Paris, and there's not a huge amount of story you don't expect. It's just it's pure nostalgia, and it's uh, just something to really indulge in. And I, so it took me a, a while after having read a lot of the other Hemingway stuff to. Like allow myself to read it almost because it just seemed 
like this just obvious like catnip thing which i would probably really enjoy and remind me was it published posthumously uh it was published posthumously actually that's a great way uh, <laughs> a great way to start Rachel. we didn't set this up hemingway is dead and we are so sorry to announce breaking it. news Wait. breaking breaking <laughs> news guys rachel let the cat out of the bag yes it's posthumous he's no longer humus or human continue uh yeah so to go on from that this is the uh, the most sort of like writing that i feel i've ever done for this podcast when i say oh thanks chris like okay well the story of this book is one of two discoveries <laughs> It's so vague, I can't even say it's bad, but, but what does that mean? <laughs> All right, so what I mean is is that the first discovery, and I did, I did not know this, but the first discovery was in 1956 when Hemingway is on his way to being 60. He's, a very, he's already a pretty unwell man on account of all of the accidents that he's had and the very heavy drinking that he's done throughout his life. And a trunk of his old notes was found in the basement of the Ritz. Uh, his notes from the 1920s in Paris, yeah. Uh, and he's like, wow, that's where they've got to. <laughs> and apparently he he approached the trunk. I think there's a quote somewhere from his wife at the time, uh, Mary Hemingway, about how he approached it like he was approaching this like octopus tank at an aquarium with this like, real trepidation and excitement. And then he just like fell upon it. And he was so delighted to sing all of these memories from him being a young man. Uh, oh, God, I live in fear that a box that I lost in college that contained my journals at the time will someday be found. Uh, this is my fame fear. I am, <laughs> I am also very excited for fame to come and embrace me. But I'm afraid for this reason, it's because my journals at the time were just like, I love Matt. I love Matt so much. Does Matt love me? Does, do I, does Matt still love me? Is Matt loving me still? It's like, so someday that's going to be found. And if that, that actually sounds quite hemming. <laughs> I, as the executors of my literary estate, I hereby ask you to destroy it <laughs> with extreme prejudice. Even if we find it in the basement of the Ritz. Yes, but I, but I want you to write a book about how you found it at the basement of the Ritz because it was in the, the unlocked uh, basement of my friend's like row house. Right. Yeah. Right. So anyway, yeah, Hemingway had been. Um, He'd been really struggling to write at this stage in his career and really suffering from not being able to write. And on the one hand, finding these old notebooks was great because it gave him a, a huge amount of like old material to rework on the one hand. And then on the other hand, he loved it because there was so much in those books about how difficult he found it to write. Uh, and as an older man, he was, as I say, delighted because he said, ah, oh, look, it was always so hard for me. It's not just hard for me now. That's lovely. Can I just say that's wonderful? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I do think he was finding it harder to write as an older guy, but. Oh, for sure. But I just think what a wonderful confirmation from your past self. I just think it feels honestly almost movie magic-y, right? That yeah. in that moment, this trunk, it, it, it's so romantic. Capital R and lowercase r. <laughs> I think it's one of those things that's like childbirth and that you have to forget how hard each book is to write right. while you're doing, or you'd never write another right. one. It's that same part of your brain that's activated to make you have more babies. Yeah. <laughs> more, exactly. more book babies. <laughs> Mothers don't come after me. Writing a book is not the same thing as having a baby. Yeah. <laughs> the second discovery. Remember how I opened this with that great kind of thematic opening? <laughs> the second discovery was after, yes, you're right, after Hemingway had died 
and uh, his wife again, uh, Mary Hemingway, found the um, typed out manuscript of um, what was to become a movable feast in his study. Have you ever read the New Yorker profile of Hemingway where the one just follows him around New York City for two days? He talks like he writes, which makes him sound absolutely insufferable. But I'm thinking after however long she lived with Hemingway, 15, 20 years, something like that. She meant the reporter. And I was like, God, New Yorker reporters used to really care. They used to fucking care. The New Yorker used to be something back in my day. Talk about, talk about embedded. <laughs> I feel that it's like a story from the French Dispatch. <laughs> Point being, though, I feel like it would be hard to live with Hemingway for 20 years and not try to write a book imitating his style. <laughs> Look, we're not saying Mary Hemingway wrote this, but she was a writer and she did have to live with him for 20 years. And she did she did edit it as well. She's the editor of the, at least the original uh, text which came out. Uh, a disclosure, I don't know if you were aware, but there was a, a, a republishing, a reissuing of, of Moobal Feast a few years ago. I haven't read that one. So no, I'm either. talking about just the original um, A Moobal Feast, which was edited by Mary Hemingway. By the sound of things, there wasn't a huge difference between the two texts which came out. Uh, I think in the latter one, the main thing is that there's a long apology to Hadley towards the end of it. Oh, yeah. Uh, which Mary got rid of because she felt that it, that Hadley being uh, Hemingway's first wife, uh, who we're going to get to shortly, but, um, and yeah, Mary cut this long apology to Hadley out because she felt that it undercut her prominence as his wife when he, he he died and stuff like that, which is, I suppose, understandable. Yeah, she was the um, Catherine Parr of Hemingway. <laughs> Tune in at some point for our discussion about Hemingway's wives. Um, so yeah, she edited it. The other main thing that I read was that there's a lot which in this version is written in the uh, first person. And in fact, Hemingway wrote a lot of the original book in the second person. So it was a lot of yous and stuff like that, which so you're not surprised. But yeah, it was, I mean, I didn't I didn't know that at all. I don't mean to say and it wasn't something that I consciously thought. But when you when you just said that, I just thought, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. I think with this book, also, the the you pronoun really makes sense as well when you read it, because there's it's a lot about the kind of the tense that it's written in, which is um, past continuous, possibly. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can also imagine the kind of thing, like, uh, to go back to the example I quoted earlier, or referenced earlier, the kind of, you know, you go to the Luxembourg Gardens, you're very hungry. I can imagine just jotting that down as notes. Yeah, well, you were going to the Luxembourg Gardens, and you were buying this, and that. That's... Look at Chris and his grammar. Oh, I'm not sure if the past continuous is the right word for you're that. You're right. It's, it's oddly, things are continuously in flux, and yet also things remain the same <clears throat> simultaneously. And I think that... That's why verb tenses in Hemingway's prose is really are really weird. They do a lot of work for you, right? Like they really show you how static things are, but everyone's moving. Everyone's getting something to eat, getting something to drink, going this way. They, they're you know they're walking a lot. If you would, they're a movable feast. You can't see me, but I'm awestruck. <laughs> I mean, I think in this book it really gives this sense of huge like nostalgia as well, and and also because it's a book written by an older man about his youth there's a way in which i think that by writing it in this tense and using that he's trying to capture that and suggest that it's always happening somewhere so yeah it has both that nostalgia quality and that degree of trying to hold on to it somehow uh, and that's yeah just it really affects just the the feeling of mm -hmm. of, of of a movable feast 
So on uh, We'll Always Have Paris, we like to talk about love stories, do we not? Yeah. The, 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 I could take them or leave them. <laughs> so the thing is, is that A Movable Feast, as well as being the memoir of Hemingway's early years in Paris, it's also a memoir of his relationship with his first wife, Hadley. And so before I jump into kind of what the book's about, I wanted to just give a kind of like a brief, like biographical note about, well, him and her and how they came to to live in Paris. So this is for the people who don't know about Hemingway. Um, he was a writer. He was a writer. Yeah, he's a writer. American. <laughs> he was born in a, a suburb of Chicago to a fairly middle class family. Which is very new, near where I grew up. And actually, my great aunt lived in Oak Park. Okay. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, and so he had, you know, a kind of. I, I, there's a lot of things I think you can say about his childhood. There's so much information about Hemingway that trying to redact this all is is tricky because he's been like biographied and biographied. So he started out as a journalist on uh, the- Kansas City Star. <laughs> I'm so sorry. You can finish uh, all of these sentences because it's a Hemingway quiz. <laughs> do it, do it. Oh my God, quiz me, quiz me. I, I've, I've only got very specific information here. Um, I know very specific information. So on the Kansas City Star, people have said that the paper's style guide was foundational to Hemingway's writing. The True. The City Star style guide in 1918 was in English was brief use blank sentences use blank first paragraphs use blank English plain uh, be positive not negative short short plain uh, it is it's short short vigorous oh wow that really feels influential vigorous <laughs> feels like such a Hemingway verb it also kind of feels like my biography short short vigorous <laughs> Um, Hemingway was, so he wanted to sign up to the US Army to fight in the First World War. Uh, He was rejected, though, for his poor eyesight. Did you know that? No. I did. And it was to him what not playing football at Princeton was to F. Scott Fitzgerald. (laughs) It ruined him for the rest of his life. No, but it was okay because he then volunteered for the Red Cross. And they let him drive ambulances. They're like, you don't see well enough to fight. But yeah, drive around Europe for a while (laughs) with your bad eyes. (laughs) Presumably he didn't tell anyone who got into the ambulance why he was there. He just memorized the eye charts. Um, so he was driving ambulances on the Italian front in World War One for a couple of months. Uh, and did he ever profit from that later in his writing? <laughs> did he ever make use of his war experiences? <laughs> Listen, I think he had a tough time. <laughs> it was a tough two months. I'm not going to lie. It does look. I, it, it is true. Actually, it's an interesting thing because yeah, he spent two months. Uh, fighting this war and he got a whole load of novels out of it. He became part of a generation because of it. But I haven't spent two months on the Italian front during World War One. I'm sure he saw some pretty horrible things. But also no one's giving you the chance, Chris. Don't play it yourself. But it is an interesting thing that, yeah, he really that he really milked it. But nevertheless, I think it was a pretty horrible experience. So I don't want to like milking is kind of unfair to to say. Uh, but yes, he he and he also he got pretty badly wounded. Where? Uh, in his legs. 
uh, in his legs. And um, this, while he was wounded, he also apparently saved a bunch of people from fire, uh, which won him some bravery medal. Good for Hemingway. And then he ended up staying in a hospital in Milan for six months where he famously fell in love with one of the nurses. Right, Catherine. Uh, yes, yeah, Catherine. <laughs> well, yeah, Catherine is how she appears in uh, the book that he wrote about this experience, A Farewell to Arms. Her real name was Agnes. <laughs> yeah, early 20th century, not a great time for names. <laughs> I'll, I'll give him this. Hemingway did improve everybody's names immensely. That's true. He's very good at finding corresponding names. Yeah, I would like to appear in people's books as Carolina, if you don't mind. Yeah. I think it's good for me. That's really good for you. I want to be Zsa But uh, the the relationship with not Catherine the nurse didn't work out. Uh, and so and we're not talking about her. We're talking about his relationship with Hadley. So that's why I uh, don't want to dwell on that too much. Although it was a very formative relationship, but we're moving forward. But look, you can't have a couple called Ernest and Agnes. Move on. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So he's moved back. He moves back to Chicago uh, after his uh, World War One experiences. He feels that he no longer fits in there because he's had this insane experience over in Europe and people just don't really understand. He's very mature for his years at this point. I just think it's like everyone who studies abroad. They, we come back and we're like, you don't know. You don't know. I had to use a match to light my stovetop. I had to learn how to read a map. There were no dryers there. Okay. I had to just splay it about. So I totally, I'm like right there with Ernest. I really get this. Woo! Yeah, it's hard. So he worked, uh, when he's back in Chicago, he's working again briefly as a freelancer. Um, he goes to Toronto for a time. He comes back to Chicago. And when he's he's there in Chicago, that's when he meets uh, Hadley Richardson, who is, if I get this right, the friend of the sister of Hemingway's roommate. And at the same time, uh, she was the college roommate of a woman who married, was it John Dos Passos? I think so. Yeah, that's right. The The sister, the, the sister of Hemingway's roommate is the one who married John Dos, John Dos Passos. But she, the sister it was also Hadley's roommate in college at Bryn Mawr. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's just all of these literary connections. It's important to go to college. That's where you meet people <laughs> and you get an education. Originally from St. Louis, uh, Hadley, she was pretty shy and reserved person. Um, and Scorpio, she, like all the Scorpio. <laughs> <laughs> she was uh, she was seven years older than Hemingway, but um, because she'd had this really protected upbringing, uh, people considered them to be a sort of like a similar age. And the reason that Hadley had had this really protective upbringing is because she fell out of a second story window when she was a child. And so she had to spend a whole year just consigned to bed, basically. Uh, and in that time, her mother just became super overprotective of her and was really worried about her in all sorts of ways. And yeah, I like supposedly, according to what I've read, this apparently made her kind of like the, the seven-year age gap moot. Yeah, I really dislike biography that tries to connect like single events to like personality traits and relationships. But at the same time, um, I think astrology can explain it and that he was looking for a mother and so he found an older woman. The fun thing is, though, is that they really liked each other. 
and they moved to Paris together. Can that be the tagline of this show? The fun thing was, they really liked each other, and they moved to Paris. <laughs> At least for a time. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. <laughs> They got they got married in 1921, um, and then um, a fortunate thing happened in which a hated uncle of Hadley's died, leaving her a decent inheritance, which meant that... Why don't I have any relatives I hate with a lot of money? I know. It's really unfair. Uh, yeah, which meant that they could move to Paris together. Um, originally, they were considering Rome, but then... It- Paris was cheaper. Paris probably was cheap. Was it cheaper at that time? Yeah, right after World War One, it was the it was so devalued. The franc. Right. Okay. I mean, I know that it was super cheap. I just thought in comparison to Rome, but I have no idea. It was Sherwood Anderson, uh, the novelist, who suggested to Hemingway that he pick Paris instead of Rome. Uh, they'd got they'd got to know one another working as when Hemingway was working as a journalist in Chicago, and Sherwood Anderson was like, "Paris is where you want to be." So, but as you can uh, as you can tell, though, um, with all of these mentioning of famous literary names, Paris. One of the reasons to move there was because it was full of famous artists. I thought you were quizzing us again. (laughs) (laughs) People, French people. I hate this. I don't want to do that anymore. (laughs) Who lastly came to be known as the Lost Generation, (laughs) and now we're in Paris. All right, so very quick. It, it, it's not it's not really a plot heavy book. It's mostly just Hemingway going to cafes, seeing famous authors, um, and betting on the the races. Actually, um, but all right. So it, the there's a sort of like the beginning, which I really remember, and when I think about this book, is that bit where he's sitting in the cafe and the woman comes into the cafe, uh, and it's sort of like that's that's kind of my. Like and, and he's cold in the cafe, and then he drinks a, a warm alcoholic drink, and he warms as he yeah yeah. There's and then this person comes in, and there's this sort of like bit which I yeah exactly. Uh, I've seen your beauty, and you belong to me. Whoever you are waiting for, and if I never see you again, I thought you belong to me, and all Paris belongs to me, and I belong to this notebook and this pencil. Then I went back to writing, <laughs> and it says, "Guess my racing class." <laughs> Mine, 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 mine. <laughs> that was question number two in the Hemingway quiz. So yeah, there there are scenes like that. There's a lot of description about uh, Hemingway and uh, Hadley in their small apartment on the Rue Notre-Dame-de-Champs. Uh, he's complaining about writer's block. He's complaining about being really hungry. Um, he's complaining about... Which are two very different problems <laughs> in terms of like level of... In terms of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yes. Exactly, exactly. Well, arguably not for Hemingway. I mean, writing was a big deal for him. He was like super ambitious at the time. And as I said, like one of the things which really got him down at the end of his life was that he couldn't, that he couldn't write. So actually, you know, and he's also at this stage, but you have to remember when he's writing this book, A Movable Feast, he's positioned himself where he was a massive celebrity in the world. And suddenly he's characterized himself again as this young, heroic artist um, and so that idea of having writer's block was the absolute tragedy, more so than not being able to eat, although it all kind of feeds into the same thing. Um, and I, then, I wonder if he ever equated it with impotence. Oh, that that <laughs> feels very Hemingway. Yeah, that, wow. A little bit of a spoiler for next week's episode. <laughs> um, yeah, so he's struggling, you know, and he, there's actually, in A Movable Feast, there's a lot of, I don't know, do you think good? 
writer's advice, bad writer's advice? He says a lot about not sharing uh, things that you write before uh, before you've kind of got a handle on them and about feeling shame about doing that. And to some extent, I believe that. Obviously, I wouldn't be in a writer's group if I fully believed that. Mm. But I think my theory with that is that you always – if you know what's wrong with it, then you got to fix it before you take it yeah. in and get other perspectives. But um, – that's the main writer's advice that I remember from that book. I will say that I, I don't know if it's good or bad, but it does sound real. It sounds like a writer genuinely saying what they think you need to know to be a writer. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and one thing that he does say is that, that when you have writer's block, you can sit down and just write one true sentence. And that actually has helped me. Yeah. It sounds like, yeah, it, it, it just, it sounds unfiltered in a way that is not curated for a viewer's experience. Yeah. The other one that I remember is how he said that he would always write until he, you know, j and he would stop just before he knew that he had something else left to, to say. Yes. And then he would go to sleep. Leave and, gas in and, your tank. And, yeah. yeah. And then he would come back and he would have something left to start working on the next day. Do you know that I actually follow that advice? Yeah. I didn't even trace it back to Mouvoula Feast, but yeah, I do do that. So. I can't stop mid-sentence, though. It, like, it actually will itch my brain. I can't do mid-sentence, but I do always stop. The, whenever I'm decided, like, it's the last of my writing day, I stop for the big scene. Yeah. We'll always have Paris. We'll be right back with more of the love story. We'll always have Paris is brought to you by Lingoda. So, you guys, there are a lot of false friends, what the French call faux amis, between English and French. There are a few of them that are actually pretty embarrassing. Say you're going to the shop and you want to buy a bra. What would a French person think that you were asking for if you just said, je voudrais acheter un bra? Maybe you're in a mannequin show. <laughs> Why? <laughs> because you're asking for an arm, Rachel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is it. A bras in French is not a bra in the English sense. What's the word for bra in French enough? Un soutien-gorge. Which literally means a chest supporter, <laughs> because we know that the French have a weird <laughs> 19th century mm -hmm. cadence to their language. To master the actual words and not just the false friends, we recommend the online language school Lingoda. If you're planning to come to Paris for the summer, Lingoda offers you two programs that allow you to make big progress quickly. These are sprints. Over the course of two months, 60 days, you can choose to do either the sprint, which is a 60-minute course every other day, or a super sprint, a 60-minute course every day. If you take all of the classes that you say you will and follow a few simple rules, you'll get 50% of your cash back for doing the sprint and 100% of your cash back for doing the super sprint. These courses are live online, available basically 24-7. You have a selection of topics that you can choose from. These courses have a maximum of five people in them, which means that you are speaking a lot, having real-life conversations, and learning to use grammar structures really naturally. With native-level teachers and optional exercises and quizzes, the Lingoda 
platform and learning experience is one we cannot recommend highly enough. So go to lingoda.com, use our code HAVEPARIS20 for 20 euros or $25 off your deposit. So you're already saving money before you even set foot in the virtual classroom. It's not going to cost you a bra and a leg. (laughs) (laughs) No, and you can save that money for some beautiful French lingerie that you'll now know how to order. What's French for lingerie? (laughs) Actually, lingerie. It is, but that's not the point, okay? You can't do that with every word. (laughs) The point is to find out which words you can and can't do it with. It's lingoda.com, code HAVEPARIS20. Happy learning. So, yeah, <laughs> thumbs up for Hemingway on that one, yeah. right? Like He gets <laughs> a little bit of Hemingway love there. Um, he obviously goes to have have some chats with um, a friend of the podcast, Gertrude Stein. <laughs> Um, she gives him some. Uh, she she gives him some instructions about his writing. Uh, most notably, she talks to him about um, his short story "Up in Michigan," which she says is good, but it basically is unpublishable. Or she sort of says it's unhangable, effectively, because it's a controversial story. Um, which obviously, latterly, Hemingway has been proved right that this this story is like well regarded. So there's a, a subtle dig at Gertrude. Generally, I think he's pretty nice to, to Gertrude Stein in the book. Do you think? Except when he calls her and Alice B. Douglas kind of disgusting. <laughs> Except. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's, rel- he's relatively nice. And then they have this weird falling out scene. And I... Uh, I have a bit of a history with Rachel of me not kind of completely getting Hemingway's writing, apparently, or like thinking because he's obviously so subtle that I'm missing things. But you know the scene when he he comes to uh, he he comes to their apartment. This is when he really falls out with Gertrude Stein. Is when he comes to their apartment and they don't know that he's there, and he overhears the uh, the conversation between them, which is. Um, I heard someone speaking to Miss Stein as I had never heard one person speak to another, never, anywhere, ever. Then Miss Stein's voice came pleading and begging, saying, Don't, pussy. Don't, don't. Please don't. I'll do anything, pussy. But please don't do it. Please don't. Please don't, pussy. I swallowed the drink and put the glass down on the table and started for the door. The maidservant shook her finger at me and whispered, Don't go. She'll be right down. I have to go, I said. So, I mean, I... I'd kind of assumed that that scene was about him overhearing them having sex and being disgusted. Yeah, I I interpret it as having sex and maybe with a kind of dominant uh, submissive element, perhaps, or something like that. Uh, that uh, he's it's because he's obviously known that they're lesbians. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't think that's a huge secret at this point. I think it's this power dynamic that he's not anticipating. That uh, and perhaps has never experienced in any other context. Uh, that is really throwing him off. Yeah, as well. I think it's. I, th- I think it's a little bit of. So I think you're right that it's because as we've discussed, Gertrude Stein was famously the dominant person in this relationship in every way. Right, like she was the the face of the relationship. She was the one that people came to see. Really, um, but I also wonder if it's 
even if Ernest Hemingway knew, of course, they were in a romantic relationship, knowing, thinking that you know is one thing and then maybe hearing and experiencing and realizing, oh, what does that entail right. is a second thing. Um, and maybe that was just for his, you know, delicate sensibilities or whatever. He's a man of the time. It's just, it's too much, right? Like, I, I can't, I can't talk to Gertrude now after hearing this. Yeah. And that's, that's heartbreaking. I do think that the two sources of discomfort for him are, one, uh, an unexpected intimacy between the two of them. Yeah. And two, seeing that the friend that he assumes is the powerful one is, in his own mind or in his own view, less powerful all of a sudden. Well, and the thing is, because he's taking money from her, I believe, yes. he is getting, you know, advice and influence from her. And it's like, yeah, but if she's submissive to this other pro- I really think he thinks in hierarchical terms. Absolutely. So whether or not they're having sex is almost not, it's not that important. Like, wait a minute. At this point, my, like, my power dynamic is two steps below Alice B. Toklas, yes. who acts as the housekeeper exactly. here. Exactly. Like, I can really see him. It's, it's heartbreaking because, yeah, it's really too, too bad. There are, of course, a number of other writers who get mentioned in the pages. Uh, And let's see, Ford Maddox Ford, do you think, uh, does uh, Hemingway give him a a good review or a bad review? (laughs) I hadn't even heard of him when I first read this book. And I don't, I I believe he likes him, yeah? I think so. That's my memory. Am I totally off? Oh, you're you're quite off. Ford Maddox Ford gets a very bad review. Ford Maddox Ford, he was a, a British writer... Apparently he was gassed during the First World War and that meant that he wheezed a lot, which Hemingway really pulls out in his dis- his description of Ford Maddox Ford. Uh, nice, nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was Ford Maddox Ford, as he called himself then, and he was breathing heavily through a heavy stained moustache and holding himself as upright as an ambulator- ambulatory, well-clothed, upended hogshead. Uh, so Ford Maddox Ford gets a, uh, a bad rep. But on the plus side, it's not Hemingway's best writing, so it hasn't been widely quoted. (laughs) (laughs) Maddox Ford's reputation, whatever it is, is intact. Ezra Pound, though. Is he a thumb? Oh, we love Ezra Pound. (laughs) We do love Ezra Pound. We do not talk about his later fascist radio broadcasts. In this, he's just a cheerful chappy who's playing the bassoon and... and uh, helping T.S. Eliot out, get out of his banking job so that he can write The Wasteland. Oh, what a bloke. What a bloke. Yeah, Hemingway loves Ezra Pound. Uh, not a bad word to say about him. Yeah. Good for Ezra. Yeah. Not even fascist. <laughs> uh, Wyndham Lewis, on the other hand, uh, who's... A- oh, yeah, he's uh, like sentimental and like kind of garbagey in that way. Oh, it, it's worse than that. He is like horrible, horrible man, according to Hemingway. Uh, Hemingway describes him as having the eyes of an unsuccessful rapist. Oh, my God. Which is a burn. <laughs> That's got to be the meanest thing you could say about somebody. That's it. <laughs> oh my! Oh my God! Like without delving into actual slurs, right, like exactly. we don't have to. It's like creatively mean, yeah. Even though it wasn't directed at me, I feel like I got just like a, like a little bit of the, the air of that insult. I I feel wind. I'll tell you what, it, so to speak. Um. <laughs> <laughs> and then obviously coming to Scott Fitzgerald, who gets a, a a whole bunch of chapters about it. I love the stuff about. Hemingway and Scott in this book. Why would you read this book for anything else if you're going to read it for one thing? This is easily the best bit in the book, which is Hemingway's... The butterfly? Hemingway's road trip. Yeah, like road trip with Scott Fitzgerald. He also, he writes this 
beautiful thing about uh, Scott Fitzgerald as well. His talent was as natural as the pattern that was made by the dust on a butterfly's wing. At one time, he understood it no more than the butterfly did, and he did not know when it was brushed or marred. Later, he became conscious of his damaged wings and of their construction, and he learned to think and could not fly anymore because the love of love off light was gone, and he could only remember when it had been effortless. That, to me, is the best sentence that Hemingway ever wrote. I think it's stunning. It just kills me. I, yeah, agreed. And it's it's also, sometimes with uh, Hemingway's metaphors, which we will get to in our Hemingway month, there are times where I'm like, I don't get it. <laughs> it's like, it's like the, the hog's head, the pig's head thing. It's like, it's such a stretch. The sentence is so long. It doesn't quite work. And Who's seen a pig's head? That's it. And sometimes it sounds good, but then if you think about it for too long, it loses it. But that really is just, that is what imagery is used for in writing, frankly. It's, it's, it's to me perfect. That's, uh, that's one of my favorite bits of writing ever. Then he goes on a road trip with Scott Fitzgerald and ends up measuring penises with him. I believe it's comparing. There's no objective measure because uh, clearly uh, Hemingway does not want to give us number. Oh, no, no. He's learned a thing or two in his career. But the, the road trip is fantastic. So they have to go and pick up this car from Lyon and they get there and the, car is missing a roof because Zelda wanted the roof taken off because she prefers convertibles or something like that. Hemingway's always at his best when he's describing a road trip, to be Uh, honest. And he's at his worst when describing Zelda. That's it. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. But any sort of wheeled conveyance, that's where he hits his sweet spot. He knows how to take you there. But there's some lovely, like, amazingly petty stuff, given that this is a book which is being written 40 years after the fact. More than that? No, about 40 years after the fact. I can really imagine myself doing that <laughs> for now. And he's like, oh, Scott, he, Scott got the hotel to make us breakfast, when obviously we could have got the exact same breakfast for just as cheaply, and so for a lot more cheaply, and probably better if we just bought it on the way. But then, yeah, like, Scott, they, they're driving along it rains in this open top car scott feels that he's caught a chill he's he's caught consumption i think and he's like scott is definitely presented as very delicate in this he's a he's a fragile flower exactly and he keeps getting uh hemingway to check his pulse and take his temperature and there's a lot of comedy it's very good um even if scott fitzgerald doesn't come off well and it could be hemingway settling scores i don't know including as i say the then penis comparison scene in which Scott is concerned that his pe- he's never slept with he confesses to Hemingway that he has never slept with anyone apart from Zelda and Zelda has said that his penis is not big enough to give her pleasure and he's really worried about that and Hemingway's like right to the bathroom now <laughs> I don't know if he said it in that voice and then they and where he tells Scott that some are showers and some are growers <laughs> That pivotal piece of wisdom. <laughs> Not in that exact phrase, though. Hemingway didn't invent that. <laughs> because the thing is, though, they're, they're just comparing at ease. Yeah. How does it... But I guess Scott knows nothing. And you know what? If he'd been on the football team, he would have known. So maybe he was right. <laughs> that was the tragedy of his life. Louvre, though, and Hemingway's pointing at all of the statues and saying, look at these tiny dick statues. <laughs> He says, once you start thinking about tiny dicks, you just see them everywhere. (laughs) 
I don't, do, do we believe that story? Is it? No. The, the second part, no. Not the like, not the, the tiny dick tour of Paris. Yeah. Which, uh, <laughs> that feels a little bit like, in hindsight, he's going over his notes and he's thinking, you know what could be really funny? And adding that into Like, me. I bet they discussed it. I yeah. doubt, I'm 50-50 on whether he was like, I'll show you my cock. Yeah. I don't think he's confident enough in his homosexuality to do that. No. And uh, then the the like yeah little tour of the Louvre I think he probably referenced that like when you look at classical sculptures yes, exactly. and then like for some reason he was like showing is better than telling <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean I I really thought I mean because I said this is one of the last books that Hemingway ever wrote and it's amazing to think of this um, giant of uh, you know of 20th century literature and one of the last things that he ever wrote in his life is just a description of him comparing penises with Scott Fitzgerald but I love it so I mean I'd love to go out the same way <laughs> <laughs> lasting legacy right there um, and to get back to Hadley because and so Hadley has uh, she's been you know they're throughout the book, and they they seem to be having a, a like a, a wonderful time. And the book is peppered with these really like sad, nostalgic things about how they love one another, and their life is simple. And and they call their baby Bumby, yeah. Which I don't want a baby, but I want a Bumby. I want a Bumby too. And so they're having an amazing time, and it really is. It, it when you read it, I feel that the book gives this feeling of being written by an older person who is sad that his life didn't turn out in the way that he hoped it could have done. And he's almost imagining this other life where he stayed with Hadley. Because what actually happened is that Hemingway ended up having an affair with one of Hadley's very good friends, a journalist called Pauline Pfeiffer. And this affair... Aaliyah. So, <laughs> Aaliyah. This affair deepened and deepened um, until... At some point he hits her cervix. <laughs> wow but he's <laughs> getting my dad wrote a pornos all over the blueprint is all over this podcast we want to thank them <laughs> for their patronage the thing is is that even well at least according to a, a movable feast hemingway is still like really in love with hadley and he's effectively in love with these two women at the same time but it's something that Hadley, obviously, when she finds out about it, she can't abide it. I think that what she offered was she said to Hemingway that, look, you have to promise me not to see Pauline for a hundred days. And if after a hundred days that you still love her, then you know you're you're free to go and I'll leave you. Um, and on reflection, Hadley thought, why well, that was a, that was the worst idea that I could have had. What I should have done is let them like burn the relationship out. But instead, that is what she did, and he ends up leaving uh, leaving Hadley for for her. And he blames Pauline for it in large yeah. part. Yeah, to to a large degree. I mean, I think there is there's a lot of talk. I like coming in to defend Hemingway. He does, and I think that there's a lot of talk about how he got angry with Pauline for doing this, and angry with Hadley for not understanding that this was just a perfect situation. <laughs> oh, Hadley, I get to fuck you and your best friend. Why are you mad at me? Why don't you want good things for me? <laughs> and also, I thought she was your best friend, Hadley. What kind of friend are you? Do you want good things for her? Yeah. We're both your best friends. Please. It's pretty inexcusable, but nevertheless, there are some beautiful passages about that right on the last page of the book. Uh, he's talking about 
he's just spent uh, weeks in Paris with Pauline where he's meaning to break up with her and go and see Hadley out in uh, in the Alps where he's left her and he doesn't he doesn't take one train he doesn't take another train and then eventually he does go and then he's on the train and he's left Pauline in Paris going back to Hadley and he writes when I saw my wife again standing by the tracks as the train came in by the piled logs at the station I wished I had died before I ever loved anyone but her she was smiling, the sun on her lovely face, tanned by the snow and sun, beautifully built, her hair red gold in the sun, grown out all winter, awkwardly and beautifully, and Mr. Bumbley standing with her, blonde and chunky, and with winter cheeks, looking like a good... Don't say soldier. Boy. <laughs> <laughs> Don't say he stole Ford Maddox Ford's line. <laughs> I loved her and I loved no one else, and we had a lovely magic time when we were alone. I worked well and we made great trips, and I thought we were invulnerable again. And it wasn't until we were out of the mountains in late spring and back in Paris that the other thing started again. And I mean, I think that's pretty heartbreaking, <laughs> even if he's an arsehole. Yeah. Heartbreaking for him? For everybody. Yeah. Yeah, for everybody. I, I, I guess my, yeah. No, it is a heartbreaking situation. I think that last sentence is what makes it, what makes it beautiful for me. There are times with Hemingway's prose, even though I can, I understand, of course, don't come at me. I understand Hemingway's a really good writer. Like, I, <laughs> But there are times where I get a little bit, I don't know, um, bogged down by it. But then lines like that, and then that other thing happened, it just, it's the lightness with which he ends it that makes all that came before seem far less ponderous and feel like of course it was it was it was heading towards balancing on this one small point yeah and and thus highlighting how important everything else that came before it was yeah and to the aspiring writers out there just to to point out the extent to which the grammar mm -hmm. actually creates that thought absolutely. learn your verb tenses people absolutely take latin <laughs> <laughs> no only one of us recommends that maybe two Okay, so the the first question that I had is: Do you think is this? Do you think this book is vintage Hemingway? Do you think this is as good as his other stuff? It's better than his other stuff. Yeah. Nostalgia is my favorite emotion. Navcote is my favorite word <laughs> in Amharic. <laughs> it's it's the only word I know. <laughs> um, it, absolutely, it is as good, better. Um, and again, I think of the three of us. Um, I'm probably the one who's the least um, enamored by Hemingway, and this is this is the book that I read and I just love. I, I understand completely. Of course, he's he's as famous as he is. He's a classic. Of course, I really do love this book. And the thing is that I think he writes here, not overwrites, but elaborates in a way that he doesn't in some of his other. That's it exactly. And he's really good sometimes when he lets himself go. Yeah, I mean, you see some of the cuts and edits from his other books, and you're like, no, that was correct. That's his, you're absolutely right. At least from I completely agree. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it, it it's definitely f like it's funny and it has genuinely funny bits in it. Um, there is an awful lot in in there about gambling, which like going to the horse races. And you are famously against that. That's the thing that you say always. It's just, I mean, I think anything in this book which is not about his relationship with Hadley or meeting famous people from the lost generation. I'm a little bit like, get to the meet, Hemingway. <laughs> I don't like, fine, you went to a horse race and you gambled on some horses and the horses were good and then that horse was bad and it fell at the final hurdle. But it's it's not really, it's not giving me, uh, it's not giving me what I want. And I feel, as I said at the beginning, that this book is just pure, it should be just like pure catnip to somebody who, 
uh, is a writer in Paris, effectively. I'll tell you what, I mean, you say that it's funny. I think the the beauty of this for me is that the funny parts are sad. You read mm-hmm. the stuff with the, the Fitzgeralds and you know how they ended up and you're going, well, that's, it's funny, but it's sad. And you read the sad parts, like the Stein, you know, friendship mm-hmm. breakup, you know, and it's also funny because it's just like, what fucking Hemingway, you can't even, you yeah. know, like it, tuck your dick away for like 30 seconds exactly. to just be like, sometimes people other than me have sex with each other <laughs> in different ways. Like it's, a, the, yeah, like it, it's, there's so many layers for a, a, a seemingly simple book. And I think that's what Hemingway at his best in all of his best books does. Exactly. But here it's like, he's less, he's doing it less with less self-awareness. Because I think the, what we don't talk a lot about, at least when I was um, when I was in high school and college about Hemingway, is that, of course, yes, we know his brief sentences, this kind of um, uh, maybe distract, um, not distractingly, but deceiving, deceptively simple prose. It works when it works. It's because we realize, oh, of course, what he's talking about is so much more complicated, and we feel that shade in each and every word. There are times where, for me, sometimes with this prose. It is just, oh, yeah, it's very simple prose and these are very short sentences. But I think you're right that here, all the action, even the gambling parts, right, which I agree with you. Those are not the parts that I come back to. Those are not the parts I remember. They, again, feel charged with something else. And the fun part is kind of trying to map it and go, oh, what emotion is he talking at now? Because you can tell that he knows and you're just trying to you're trying to map, figure that out as well. And it doesn't feel like the intellectual exercise that like Hills, Hills would like white elephants, for example. And you read it and you're just like, she had an abortion. And it's just like, wait, like you're not feeling any of the stuff yeah. except like pleasure in your own cleverness yeah. for yeah. figuring it out. And uh, that's not what's going on here. Mm. So do you think that there's... I mean, can you imagine a world then in which Hemingway and Hadley had stuck it out and would that have changed the kind of writer that he was? Or do you think that like, there was no way if it wasn't going to be Pauline Pfeiffer, it would have been somebody else? I hate to be a pessimist, but yeah, I kind of think so. Unless, unless something else had happened that drastically changed who he appears to be uh, for us now reading his work and reading his biographies, I kind of think, yeah, it wasn't going to work out. I well yeah I don't think it was going to work out but I think if he'd stayed with Hadley if he'd been able to hide his affair better if he'd you know n- not had the affair God forbid mm-hmm. uh, you know all of this I I think the you know so say he and Hadley stay together does it change his writing does it change anything No I think Hemingway puts way too much um emphasis on who he's fucking at any given moment and how they're affecting his prose when really it's just he has writer's block a lot of the time and uh, tries to find reasons for it in his environment. And so often that's the women. And that's, yeah, really troublesome that women can only be causes uh, to him in some ways, at, at least in his personal life. Well, there's the other famous thing which happens in this book, which I haven't mentioned up until now, which is that Hadley, at a certain point, takes uh, all of his writing up until that point when he's still uh, like a sort of 24, 25-year-old man, all of his writing so that he can edit it in the countryside. She takes it with him on the train and she leaves it on the train or on the platform. And so he loses all of his writing uh, up until that point, almost all of it. Two points. You take your own goddamn suitcase (laughs) to the country 
And Chris, I apologize for leaving your birthday present on the train. I am sorry. I knew it was going to come up. I, I feared it. I was a... That actually happened this week. This is a true story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's like, but I mean, supposedly he, the one of the things, and you might say that this is like the star text thing again, but that he was incapable of ever forgiving her for uh, having done that. And Stop yelling at Rachel. It was a mis... I'm sorry. It was a fucking mistake. Stop using Ernest as your avatar to get mad. We talked about this, Chris. We had a whole meeting and we said no more. No more Ernesting. God. But yeah, did he leave? Did he end up leaving Hadley or did the relationship break down in that moment? What an easy excuse. Relationships don't break down because of one simple cause. And they don't break down because somebody did something stupid and forgetful. Like... As somebody who's done a lot of stupid and forgetful things. Like, I'm trying to think about, uh, like, the modern equivalent if, you know, if Kev's, like, I don't know, left my laptop somewhere. I don't know, something like that. Yeah, I'd be, like, fucking furious. I'd be horrible to him. I don't think that would mean the end of our relationship. Yeah, but this is not going to happen. But, like, if you got divorced 10 years from now, you can so easily see how somebody would be like, yeah, this is just because you wiped my fucking hard drive. Right. And I can hate- it's such a couple argument. Absolutely. And, of course, and you create that narrative, right? You go, well, that's when I knew that you were trying to undercut my career. You didn't want me to be successful, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, no, I... That's when I started seeing Pauline, your best friend, and getting hard-ons. It was really, really connected with that writing. Pauline is so nice. I do like her a lot. I always think that the the funny thing is, though, is that if that hadn't happened, then there's every chance that Hemingway would not be as well-known as he is today because he might have, like, you know, relaxed more into the short stories that he was able to get published and he wouldn't have had the impetus to write Sun Also Rises. Hemingway was never going to relax. <laughs> <laughs> also, he wrote Sun Also Rises in 26, so... No, sorry, on his 26th birthday, he began it. Yeah, th- it was definitely after Hadley had lost all of the short stories, though. I mean, I'm almost... Oh, like- okay, yeah, because the... Yeah, the math... Don't make me do math, my head hurts. The math isn't mathing, and that's fine. Um, and Oh, and finally, I was wondering, do you think there's anything specific about Hemingway's writing which makes him particularly good at writing about Paris? Metaphor. Like his metaphor and his imagery make you feel it even when you're not there. Well, you know what? I also think that Paris, especially by American writers, tends to be overwritten. We are um, we are obsessed with Paris, right? And whenever a writer takes up residence here, you have to kind of get across the glory, the splendor, et cetera. So I actually think his style also, um, and I don't know if this works with what you're saying, Rachel, it's, it almost, it, it undersells Paris, mm-hmm. um, but in such a way that we see clearly, of course, it's gorgeous. Right, of course. It's yeah. just that he's he's such a native to it now. He's he's become so acclimated to it. And I think that that makes Paris shine all the more. And we don't think we don't think he's overhyping it. We don't think that he's kind of giving in to just, oh yeah, the, the I don't know, the rumors or the stories about Paris. He's really experiencing it himself and he's giving us the authentic vision of it. I do say that I hold him accountable for being like, it was so cheap, even though I worked two hours a day at a journalism office, we made a living. And this came out in the 50s, and then all the Americans moved here and made it expensive. So fucking thank you, Hemingway. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Our favorite segment, Marry, Fuck, Kill. Your options are a young somewhat insecure very hungry writer that's number one he's very talented uh at writing yeah at writing uh an older 
more content and successful writer, but maybe he's not quite so talented. Or Gertrude Stein. I want to ask one question. Will these people know that I am a writer? Yes, presumably. Yeah, because you're married. I mean, you could withhold it. <laughs> if you marry them, I suppose they probably would do. If you kill them, they don't have to. Uh, if you fuck them. You just pull out the gun and they're like, what the fuck? Why? <laughs> but why? <laughs> okay. I am. Look, I'll marry Gertrude Stein because she's the only <laughs> one who cares that I'm a writer and have any talent in this situation. Because um, I can't help thinking of the first two people as young and medium Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> but I'm going to fuck a young Ernest Hemingway in a heartbeat. That's why I was asking because... if they know if I'm a writer, if I'm being honest. No, I'll tell you what. It does, you don't have to tell him. but And then you will be immortalized. Because his first sexual experience, look, he's just going to love it. How young? <laughs> Sorry, it's too easy to make a, a joke there that's real off color. Um, 22. 22. Okay. okay. So like like in today's society, you know, I know he got married, I think, younger than that originally, uh, which, again, I, you can't blame. I, I feel like I can't blame people from earlier generations who divorced their first spouse because it's like, yeah, if I'd had to marry the first person that I dated, you know, like. A, the... So Hemingway, he'd already had like a proper relationship with the nurse in Italy before he met Hadley. So uh, just. Right. Well, it was a very improper relationship <laughs> because I do. Yeah. Like, again, so his first sexual experience, let's assume, is with uh, Agnes oh, in uh, in Italy. And then she's immortalized in literature forever. And that's fine. It's like, yeah, blow his mind. Be the but only his mind. Be the <laughs> he doesn't deserve that because <laughs> he definitely, as we'll get into with uh, the sun also rises, doesn't know about reciprocity where that is concerned. Um, and you know, just uh, just be an icon forever. Be the be the one that got away. Get in, get out. Um, a middle aged successful writer. I'm sorry, I've read Raymond Carver novels. I've read enough. 70s male writers to know that they are not kind to their wives who are the same ages as them. Uh, and even though a middle-aged uh, successful writer would be older than me, because I am not yet at that point, I would uh, think that his dissatisfaction would be taken out on me quite a bit. And I want no part in that. Whereas Gertrude Stein was just like, Blah blah blah. Automatic writing. She wasn't. She she thought she was a genius. Fine, as long as she thinks I'm a genius too. That I don't think this hypothetical middle aged writer would think. It's, it's interesting, like to to speak against that a little bit. You're you characterize the young male writer as Hemingway, and then the middle aged writer was effectively like an updike figure. Oh no, he was still Hemingway, but with like projecting what I know about middle-aged writers who have had some success to be fair like Hemingway um yeah his attitude towards women which I don't think we really got into hugely here we will don't worry about it we will when the two of us lead (laughs) Hemingway discussions (laughs) I actually think that his attitude towards women in the early books is pretty good like I mean he's obviously a, a person of his time and stuff like that but he's not any less fair to the women in his books 
than he, in, in the early ones than he is to the men. Yeah, he hates everybody. Yeah, but he also, you know, he also, I mean, certainly, I mean, in, interestingly, in this book, Hadley comes out really well. Um, Which she wouldn't, that is something that would have changed if they'd stayed together. He wouldn't have had that fondness for their early, maybe they would, maybe he would, you know, some long married couples, you know, and it's that kind of like, remember our first apartment with the thing. I don't see that with him. I I, I agree that I think it's a little bit more rosy colored because of the nostalgia. Yeah, but I mean, there's also, I mean, you could almost get into this idea that his, like, that whatever he lost with Hadley somehow set him on this path of just hating all women because they weren't quite, they weren't there. And you could also say that about his mother, that there was some uh, illness there, I believe as well. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There, there are all sorts of uh, like the theories that we can attribute. Um, all I know is in the, that in the end, I don't want to be with middle-aged Hemingway and I'm not moving to Idaho. <laughs> it's not, it wasn't what it is now. <laughs> Nafkote. <laughs> um, I have to agree, honestly, with Rachel because so marrying Gertrude Stein, I love marrying a patron. I've talked about this before. I think it's really important to be supported and have my work curated by someone who cares about me deeply. Um, I've talked about how I think lovemaking with Gertrude Stein would be extraordinary. <laughs> Hobbits were involved. Yeah, I have to rehash that. I think I've really talked about that poetically, frankly. Yeah. Uh, she plowed you down into Middle Earth. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, I actually, I actually, I lost language because <laughs> I thought about when I imagined Gertrude Stein fucking me in front of my two friends here. Um, and then I do, yeah, I think fucking the young writer, no question. He would not know that I'm a writer. I just love the idea of, I have, I have a weakness for someone who's a dreamer, who's kind of dumb and kind of naive. I imagine they're very hot. And they just want to have adventures, right? And we're having an affair. So definitely they're in the fuck. But but I don't want to comment on your manuscript and I don't want to give you a blurb. Right. That's why I'm not a writer. Uh, uh, to them, to when them, they ask yeah. me, I'm like, oh, you know, I do this and that. And they're so stupid and they so don't care. They're not going to ask further questions. You know, it's a miracle they ask any questions. That's it. That's great. So then we'll go to the, his garret. He's not coming to my home, please. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want him touching my stuff. <laughs> the stuff that I paid for. Oh, no. Oh, ew. You don't know how to act. <laughs> I mean, you know his garret is not very clean. I will, of course, shower and scrub <laughs> so hard after I leave. He sleeps on a mattress on the floor. If you're on top, you're not touching that much. There we go. And that's a tip for everybody out there. That's called advice. <laughs> Hot tip. You go back to his garret. It's filthy. You still want to fuck him? A perch atop him. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, middle-aged writer. Because I was even thinking, like, oh, what if they were extremely wealthy and they could be my patron? But then I was like, Jonathan Franzen is not going to be my patron. Jonathan Franzen is going to actively plot against me. I think it's so fascinating who we immediately go to if we think about middle-aged right. writers. Yeah. Because when, when you said middle-aged successful writer, I was like, oh, Franzen. Okay, let me think about I, Let me think. I that. stopped reading any male writer who was published after 1980, um, just as a matter of principle. Can I say something? Okay, Gwyneth Paltrow. That's called wellness. I read Marilyn Robinson's Housekeeping and I never went back. Right, exactly. Never went back. Will this give me joy? You're 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 Marie Kondoing Marie Kondo, right? <laughs> you don't have to bring it into your home. You just look at it from afar and go, it will actively detract my happiness. Yeah, out. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that's one, one can only have. Uh, Chris. Um, it, it's interesting listening to your conversation has really kind of like changed my mind. Yeah, we always do that. Chris should have to go first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm gonna say. Um, 
I think like marry the young writer because I think it's exciting to be in a place where you can you you're busy being excited all the time and it's it, it's good and you, you know you can kind of you can grow with them. Uh, you always marry the chaotic ones. I've noticed this about you. You always marry the chaos agents. That's so interesting. Chris Chris is definitely like a sucker for neutral chaos. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> to be fair, he is married to an atom bomb. So it's so, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to marry the sort of older success. Sorry, I'm going to fuck the older successful novelist because I think that there's somebody who's got like a lot of confidence there. They probably know what they're doing. I mean, I might end up in one of their books. I might not, but you know, whatever. I don't have to necessarily live with the consequences uh, too much. It could be a kind of like a one night thing and then that's done. Basically, oh, right, you're fucking sorry. You're not married. Okay, okay. Yeah, and also he's a man, so he doesn't have to wonder if Hemingway ever heard of the clit. Yeah. <laughs> question mark. And he doesn't worry, have to worry about getting pregnant yeah. and having a child named Patrick. Why, why would you name a child that? <laughs> I'm sorry, Patrick's out there. <laughs> Asking the important questions. And then, yeah, I've decided this week I'm going to kill Gertrude Stein. Um... Because Gertrude, he is blowing hot and cold all over you. And I know you love that, Gertrude, but not this way. <laughs> not this way. Um, I just, I, I think I'm. Why, why am I killing Gertrude Stein? Um, I just don't. I, I don't imagine that we would see eye to eye on a lot of things. Possibly, maybe we would. I don't know. I just, I, I, I basically, I came up with my two first decisions, and I didn't really uh, factor Gertrude into the equation. And now I'm thinking maybe I should reconsider. That was your first mistake. Um, <laughs> she should be factored into every decision. I always think about Gertrude. All right, I changed my mind. I'm fucking Gertrude, and uh, the middle-aged writer is out the window. So, uh, Gertrude, get your, uh, get your party panties on. <laughs> Your party bloomers on, please. <laughs> and uh, everybody come back next week when we will be talking exclusively about Lady Bread Ashley <laughs> in The Sun Also Rises. And in the meantime, explore your copy and send us a message. Let us know if you think there's any cunnilingus. Cunnilingus. <laughs> Ling linguist. All of a sudden it sounds weird to me. Cunnilingus. And where we question whether Hemingway has ever even considered going down on a woman. 